Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. Welcome to the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. I'm your host, Janie Clayton. I'm here with my co-host, Drew Freeman. This is episode one, and our first guest on the brand new and revamped Ray Wenderlich Podcast is Art Mays. We're going to be talking with him about storyboards, and we're going to talk about JSON a little bit later. Welcome, Art. Great to be here. Ready to, to jump in with some storyboarding stuff? You know, that was one of the uh, questions I had, because you get to a point where you, you've learned so much that you're not quite sure what you've learned. You came to storyboarding uh, more recently than I did because I, I saw storyboarding when they first introduced it and it wasn't quite baked technology at that point. So I was still in the world of, of putting it all together myself. Oh, no. Using the nibs. Yeah, zibs, zibs, nibs, nibs, and zibs. I, I did not enter storyboarding uh, late. I entered it very, very early, and then I was forced out of it for a little while because we were working with a company that uh, was afraid of it because it was a new technology. You know, we've heard change, everything that's new. Yeah, they're, I mean, we, we basically had to reinvent Core Data and reinvent storyboards in order to make this company happy. I guess, to be fair, that's the my favorite thing about storyboards is that I get to see what is happening. I don't have to guess where that label goes. I don't have to guess what the font size is. I don't have to guess how big that freaking table cell is. I see everything right there. And if I know what I'm doing, it works. I only mention this because I've I've had the experience of going back and forth, unfortunately. I've been to the storyboards and I've been back from the storyboards when when the company says no I'm I'm sorry you you can't use storyboards because we don't trust them and trying to do everything programmatically is a lot less fun and takes a lot more time I suppose one good thing at least is that the storyboards have not displaced the coding which means if you need to dip away from it there aren't things in the storyboards that take away or do not exist outside of the coding. It's much easier to do it in storyboards, but the alternative's there. Yeah, 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 you, you can always play with it that way. I love the fact that you can, and, and this is not 100% true, I love the fact that most things you can program so that you can create them in storyboards if you use extensions in Swift. I love that. Mm -hmm. Can you give me an example of that? A border on a view. If you want a rounded view. Would animations be something that you do in an extension that you wouldn't be able to necessarily see in a storyboard, but you'd want to have working in an application? Animations? Yeah. It depends on which type of animations. You, you have things like, like auto layout that need to be programmatically like changed when you're dealing with moving something physically on the screen, right? A lot of auto layout can be done without having to do any code at all. Right, but if you have something that's moving around. No, even then. A lot of auto, auto layout can be done without any code at all. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. I spend a lot of my time not coding. Take me through some of the ideas of doing the auto layout completely without code. Uh, stack views, for example. With the stack view, what's beautiful now, and I really just recently learned this, is that if you hide something in a stack view, it automatically readjusts itself so you don't have to worry about, well, what do I do 
with this piece of the thing that used to be here. You set hidden and you're done. And now instead of three things in a stack, you have two things in a stack. And this is, this is really good for labels. Some of those labels may not be populated, right? So you may not have data that you want to populate those labels with. If that is the case, and you have three labels in there and one of them just doesn't have data for it, you hide it and you can automatically center everything in that stack view will automatically center if you just hide that one label. So stack view is actually responding to is hidden. Exactly, which is wonderful. And I did not realize this for far too long. <laughs> Once I did, man, I really took advantage of it. It's one, it, because you can have, for instance, a cell, a table view cell. You've got maybe three labels that you want stacked on top of each other. And your designer is like, this is not populated, then we should absolutely not have that label visible. And sometimes that can be very difficult to do. Whereas if you use a stack view, which I've done, uh, I'll have a stack view with three labels inside it. I center the stack view in the table view cell. And then if one of those labels is not populated, I make it invisible and suddenly everything just stacks up. And if I remember correctly, also with the stack view, when you're dealing with rotation or the different size classes, it can be just toggled right then and there. You say, okay, this was a vertical, now I want it horizontal. And how awesome is that? I mean, literally, how awesome is that? It's UI view. It's all awesome. Three years ago, it would not work. Three years ago, this would have been 14, 15 hours of programming. Now it's like two minutes. That's one of the things that kind of annoys me about talking to people who say, you know, crap about, you know, like storyboards or any of the, the current stuff is that they're remembering what iOS was like back in iOS 6. And like every single year since iOS 6, like they've added 50% or more new stuff on top of what they had before. So it's gotten exponentially bigger over the last couple of years. And there's so much more power and things available to you that people just kind of aren't aware of because it's like, kids, get off my lawn. It is like that. I mean, that's that's an entirely accurate way of framing it because because of the the way that they have re redone storyboards over the past four years, which is frustrating because you spend <laughs> so many hours learning how to use storyboards. And so now you have to relearn storyboards. And it would be great if that happened maybe once or twice, but it's happened, I think, three or four times. The storyboard process has just been completely revamped, including auto layout, not only auto layout, but how you wire up the, the auto layout constraints has been completely reworked. We've gone from what well, from springs and structs, and then we had <laughs> we had the uh, descriptive language with the H's and the V's and the pipes. Isn't that still there? Yeah, it is. It, it is still there. But then on top of that, then there are the other constraints, and then now there's the just add anchor. I will say one of the things that that they have in storyboards, which has been uh, a savior for me, is IB designable. Yes, love it. Oh yeah, totally. That was that was amazing. It was like oh thank God. You can see what it looks like now. That's my. That's one of my favorite things is the fact that I can pop in an extension to a UI view, and now I can actually use the storyboard to create uh, rounded corners on a view, or to create a border on a view, or to create the color of the border on a view, and all of that is a few lines of code that I pop into an extension on UI view. 
Yeah, I, uh, I had an application I was working on recently, which had a gradient. It was just a gradient view. And depending on its being horizontal or vertical, a portrait or landscape would basically change where the angle and where the, uh, the center of that was. By making it IB inspectable, I'm able to actually see that background and put it behind different things. Like one of the things I find obnoxious, I do a lot of contracting work and I'll work with people who like maybe aren't necessarily just iOS programmers. They do Android and they do web and they haven't looked at storyboards since they came out like, you know, like three or four years ago. And they're convinced that storyboards are just horrible and they jump through all of these hoops to try to find ways around using storyboards by like bringing in third party libraries and doing lots of other stuff. And I just I keep looking at them going, OK, why why are you trying so hard to avoid doing something that's so easy now? And they won't even look at it. You, re- you realize it makes sense now. It does. It makes sense that. And I've run into this myself. It makes sense that you would be sort of turned off by the way that things were before. I was turned off by storyboards almost immediately. When I started working with them, I was so angry. Auto layout was tedious. It was not something that was fun. I learned how to use it because I didn't really have a choice. And it got better and better and better. But if I had not kept up with it, I would still think that it was this tedious, horrible thing. Apple is uh, Apple has had a continual uh, history of introducing some really good technologies, but sometimes they come out they're not completely baked. Uh, I distinctly remember uh, when they introduced uh, key value observing, and that was back when uh, uh, when. Uh, when Aaron Hilgas over at Big Nerd Ranch basically sort of talked after the keynote to say, this is not completely baked, but in a year or two, this will be the direction. Now we've seen the maturity of storyboards um, and a lot of the extensions to it. Uh, As a developer who goes from job to job, from contractor full-time to full-time, the first thing I'll do with an iOS app, or, or on the rare occasion now Mac apps, is I'll say, okay, your storyboard is pretty much out of date. I think what we can do during our downtime between sessions is we can streamline this down, do some other things. The last position I had had just the one monolithic storyboard because they didn't know about uh, separating out the storyboards. If I have a view controller that is over 200 lines, I have failed. Well, I also think that there's a general feeling in the developer community of almost a feeling of contempt for anything design-oriented. So it's like, ew, this is you know, like visual and it looks like uh, Photoshop. It looks like something a designer would do and we don't want to like dirty our you know precious programmer snowflake hands with going in and you know doing something that designers do. You know, like we want to do you know hard stuff like, like core data and metal and all this other stuff and we don't want to have to go in and like, you know, try to Make sure that all of these views line up and everything's all nice and pretty because we're you know programmers. Gosh darn it! And even the core da- the core data stuff has UI now too. I, I I deal with enough companies with designers who the designers re- range anywhere from yeah make it be somewhere on the screen to I want this pixel perfect. And when I get a design that says I want this forty percent of the width, I, I'm happy not to code that. But yeah, it's it's everyone's everyone's going to grab the tools their own way. 
I just I, I so I come from like a design background. I do graphics and I'm very interested in how people actually interact with my applications. And a lot of times I'll come in and I'll work for companies and they'll say, yeah, we don't want you to worry about what people actually see on the screen or how they interact with it. We just want you to sit in your corner and we want you to like, you know, change API endpoints on, on our application for stuff. And I find that very frustrating. And those are people you kind of want to kill. <laughs> you, you don't want those people to still be alive in this world at the same time that you are. Well, I don't want to be working for them. Oh, if co- if coders ran the world. If coders <laughs> ran the world. But that's not entirely true either. I mean, I I love being able to see on the screen what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the other thing is like when I leave my contract and somebody else comes in after me, like it's so much easier for them to just open up a storyboard and go, okay, this is what the application looks like. Oh, that's what it looks like. <laughs> oh, instead of trying to go through like hundreds of lines of code to figure out, well, this is 20 pixels in and this is 25 pixels in. And now these, you know, it's, it's so much easier to just look and see instead of trying to read hundreds of lines of code. Oh my God. <laughs> Breathe deep breath. I've had to, I, I've, I had to do that after it was necessary. Like after it, it became unnecessary, I still had to do that. It was a terrible, terrible time. So let me ask you this as, as our resident storyboard expert for today. <laughs> tips, tricks, hidden things that you've discovered just you know, we've got somebody listening. I love going back to 101 classes. To, to I love going to to basic tutorials because I will always find something I'm like, hell, I did not know you could do that. So if you were to pick some tips and tricks, and they may be something that everybody knows, what have you got to offer? Well, there's there's so much that that seems really basic now that may or may not be basic. Uh, I mentioned stack views before. Um, First, if you're using a stack view and you put one label inside that stack view, you're dumb. Don't do that. If you're using a stack view, you need multiple things inside the stack view. I've worked with a lot of developers who did not realize that that was a thing. It's kind of hard to make a stack of one. It's not hard at all because all you have to do is hit one button. You can make a heap of one too. And (laughs) Uh, one thing that uh, everybody should know now is that table views will now, if you set everything up right in uh, the storyboard, table view cells will automatically resize themselves. Nice. Little sneaky thing there, though, when you get the boilerplate code, you have to remember that the commented stuff out that says, please assign this cell type. You don't do that if you've done it in the storyboard, only if you've done it outside the storyboard, because that will screw you up. I think you and I worked offline on that for a better pass of an hour and a half. You don't have to register cells. Yeah. No, you, you don't have to register cells anymore if you put them in the storyboard, but that's that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if you set the, uh, the labels up correctly within a cell, and then you set one thing on the cell, and for some reason I can't remember what the hell that is right now. If you set one thing on the cell that says you need to automatically resize yourself, then if you set that label up correctly in the storyboard, you can put 
anything you want to in that label. It can be a hundred lines long. And that cell is going to be like, oh, well, I need to resize myself for those hundred lines. And that's it. And that blew my mind. What happens if you throw on font auto sizing then? Doesn't matter. Hmm. All of it auto, it, it's automatically done for you. You set one thing and damn it, I need to remember what that thing it is. But the thing that really blew my mind was really this auto resizing of the cell because it used to take so much time and effort to try and figure out how big is this cell going to be? And if, if there was variable text in the cell, that's one thing. If, if you knew exactly that it was, oh, I only need two lines of text in the cell, that's one thing. If it could be two or 20, that's something entirely different. And it used to be a huge issue, and now it's not. I feel sort of like this speaks a little bit to things that Apple are doing, because like when I got into iOS development, it was between iOS 5 and iOS 6, and I remember lots of people had lots of open source frameworks that would go and solve all of these pain points and stuff like that. But over the years, Apple has found a way of like dealing with all these pain points. So I feel kind of like people come in and they're like, I want to make my mark and you know fix something. It's like, well, everything's already kind of fixed and there's not much else to do. Oh my God. There's no little hanging fruit left to do. Anything that you do is going to be fairly large and immersive and, and complicated and can't be done in like a weekend. That's not 100% true. Uh, here's where that gets complicated. I, I think of what Apple has done as sort of the Library of Congress. Everything's there, but nobody knows how to find it. I would agree with that. And that's why RayWenderlich.com has been great in a lot of ways is because they help us find things that are already there. And a lot of these third-party libraries, uh, from my perspective, are doing things that you can do in two lines of code, but because nobody knows those two lines of code... They're downloading third-party libraries. <laughs> I, I found that extraordinarily frustrating. It's like, why don't you just use this thing? Fortunately, there has been a good spread of uh, of, um, of of Ray Wenderlich's tutorials. Uh, there's been a, a lot of good communities that open up so that people can share these ideas. But it's it still tends to be one of those lone coder things. There's been a lot of great advancement in storyboards. You gave me a couple of your tips and tricks. Current, if you, I mean, you're you're so well rooted in storyboard. What are your gripes, or if there was anybody from Apple listening, what are your wishes to make storyboard go even further? You know, I I don't like the way that they've changed the way. There's no iPad Mini. You can't simulate an iPad Mini. Well, that's all the size classes now, which admittedly those are very tricky. Exactly, the size classes they. They used to be tricky, and then they got easy, and now they're tricky again, and I'm not happy about that. So what was it that you liked about size classes, and what is it about size classes now that's made it more difficult? I liked that they were easy to define before, and now they're not easy to define anymore. Like, if, like as an entry point, if you're walking into storyboards and you're like, well, how do I define what this size class is? It's easy to make a mistake now. It was easy to make a mistake in the beginning. And then for a little while in the middle there, everything was kind of nice. And then 
now everything has changed. Okay, so size classes definitely are one of those things that still a bit muddled. If there are any other things you could fix or add on or things that just drive you nuts about storyboards? Yes. Uh, one of the primary issues that I've had is after I define an extension and create something that's IB designable, if I then set that thing in the storyboard and then delete the IB designable thing, uh, the storyboards don't realize that something horrible has happened and they need to not try to access that key value anymore. I think that that's probably the primary issue that I've had with storyboards. You know, so I play with the IB designables a lot. You can try this. If you if you walk in there and, and create an extension on UI view and create an IB designable within the extension on the UI view and then go into storyboards and set literally anything that you've set in the extension on the UI view and then you delete that extension, like your life is misery after that. Time to delete the derived data folder, close Xcode and start again. That drives me insane. Well, no, at that point, then you go and you jump off the building and you take the computer with you. <laughs> so I have my one always pet peeve of storyboards and it's one that I, I keep writing radars over, and that is the number of source code control check-ins that consist of, I breathed on it, Xcode has violated this storyboard file. Yes. Xcode wants to change your storyboard file, even if you open it to look at it. And the, the format has changed. That has not been as big a problem in the past six months as it was before that. In the past six months, they fixed a lot of that. It doesn't, when, when you open it, it doesn't screw everything up. It used to screw everything up. And now it doesn't. Well, that also brings in the other complaint. The main one that I hear from most people complaining about storyboards is this idea that you can't, you have merge conflicts with them because of people course. touch the storyboard multiple. Well, but the, the thing that is like, you can get around that by, you know, like basically having like, you know, like a, a, a speaker storyboard stick segment. where what, like, yeah, well, or just basically say like, hey, I am touching the storyboard right now. Nobody else is to touch the storyboard until this gets merged into master. I mean, it like, that's a easy. real pain though. That's, I mean, it's... How much of a pain can it be? How many times? <laughs> when, when you get into a larger team, when you're working with more than a few people, it's it can be a real pain. Having worked on large teams, admittedly, storyboard refactoring, which allowed us to basically start chopping these things up so that... Exactly. You know, your one view or your one or two pieces to that view set in its own storyboard file... But there are still a lot of uh, files, uh, the, the PB projects or workspaces, yeah. the storyboards, the zibs. Are Those should be in Git Ignore. The, the, the project file I can't really put in Ignore. Yeah, the project file should yeah, be Yeah, the project file is a bigger problem. I don't know. The, the biggest team I've worked on is with me and both of my pugs. My largest project was, I think, 15 people. And the PBX needed to be in Git Ignore because if we could assign... I don't know what I don't know what the best word is. It, uh, a way that we could contextualize the way that we were assigning files. Like if you create a file and you put it into a folder that says view controllers, when you create the file, right? Then all of those view controllers are in one file, and the project doesn't doesn't really care. All the project thinks is, well, this is where I need to look for it. But the people who are building the project 
need to know where that file is. So that's one issue. But the issue we were talking about was with storyboards. My initial solution was to assign each person on the team a storyboard. Nobody else touches that storyboard because if they do, you're going to have merge conflicts. That was made easier by storyboard segues. So now, instead of having to worry about, well, how are we going to get to the storyboard? Because, man, I did a lot of that. Instantiate, storyboard, blah, blah, blah. Now you can do a storyboard segue. And you can separate out the storyboards individually for each person. And you say, you work on this part, and you work on this part, and you work on this part, and you don't have to worry about it. Anything else you want to add in concerning storyboards? Uh, Separate them out. If you're using a team that's larger than two, you need to use storyboard segues, and you need to not touch a storyboard that doesn't belong to you. I think that's the primary thing is the ownership of a storyboard. You can say a lot about zibs and nibs. I like storyboards better because I associate more with a larger context, if you will. I did not initially like the fact that every time I tried to merge, I couldn't merge without going in and essentially reworking a storyboard in a language or a format that I didn't understand, essentially. If you are a designer, if you're a person who is an architect, what you should concentrate on, in part, is the way that your builders interact. And one of those ways is by separating out storyboards and allowing for one person to be the owner of that part of the application. That's, I think, the primary thing that I would tell anybody. That's been the hardest thing for us to learn in the past three years. All right, well, moving on to the second portion of our podcast. Thank you so much, Art, for all of your information about storyboards. So now we get to put Lord Andre on the spot and have him talk to us a little bit about JSON. I had to start with something that was like easier to deal with before I started doing things that I know nothing about. That Jason wasn't that easy because everybody keeps writing freaking blog posts about it and talking about how difficult it is to deal with. You know, that's the thing is that every few years there's yet another file format that that everybody wants to do. And I I, I go back to uh, to basically uh, from about the time of LiveJournal was about the time the podcasting kicked in and everything was XML and you it was XML and Adam and XML had five different things in RSS had seven different formats with different numbering styles. And of course it was all the servers would give you a blob of XML and that still lives out there in the P lists. But now we have JSON, which is pretty much a new style of XML without being XML at all. It's, it's different. Well, like I just, I remember when, when Swift came out that everybody was like, Oh, this language is terrible. We'll never be able to parse JSON with it. And every single freaking app on the app store has to be able to parse JSON. So Swift is a no go. Well, I mean, there's always been the JSON serialization as there's been the XML serialization, but those things are just messy. And a uh, job I worked on, I came in and they basically had this huge monolithic master control program in the middle that was one part Alamo Fire, one part Object Mapper, one part Moya. And all of these things were specifically there to talk to the backend server, 
get the file and dump it into objects. You're not kidding. So this was the chimera of the damned. It really was. And, you know, you go in there and you start carving out Moya because they're, they're underusing it. Is there a better way? With Swift 4, now that you can actually have, like, m multiple uh, protocols, you know, Codable came out. And Codable lets you really handle JSON nicely. Is there is there a way to handle JSON? Is there a way to handle it that when the the weird stuff gets introduced, when the backend developer decides, hey, I'm gonna change this because I don't care who you are or what you think or what your life is like, I'm just going to do it. Is there a way to handle that within the code? Well, the thing there is that what you're dealing with is that JSON is really the intermediary communication channel to get the business data that usually sits in a database or something on some server and get it into your, your object classes to basically wrap the business logic in the app. So all it really is is just that, that, that present that you have to unwrap. And you get the same thing in core data. And core data has done wonders now with the fact that you can actually change the core data schema without blowing up your code. Yeah. But everybody was making this library to unwrap JSON. And, you know, you can still actually just pull it in as a dictionary, but it's the parsing because you get certain standard types. However, there is still some disagreement on some of those types. If you get a Boolean, are you getting true false as text? Are you getting zero one? Yeah. Zero. And I think Alamofire is still trying to figure that one out. Seven years ago, man, I remember writing a, a I remember writing a very significant piece of code that would decode JSON and XML and RSS feeds. And now I'm I'm wondering whether there's a better way to go about it because it. I feel I feel like you're you're doing the Billy Mays pitch where he's like, we have all of these problems that we have. What is the solution? It's this new magic thing that came out in iOS 11. No, but you know what I mean, right? With Codable now, I mean you're still having to take the responsibility of the networking communication. When I do these things in playgrounds, I'm copying the text and. I'm very happy now with playgrounds that you can do the triple quote around things so that you can just have a blob of, of JSON text there. But you're still responsible for making the classes. But what they've done is they've made it a lot easier to make the conversion from how the server guys are going to make the JSON look and how you need it to be on your end. That's the primary issue that we're facing that I face on a pretty much everyday basis is the mapping I'll put a plug in and I'll put the links in the show notes that there are two JSON apps and they're free on the app store that I, I live by. And they're uh, like JSON Accelerator and Power JSON Editor. Free apps and really they do a good job of yanking the JSON from the server. You can do posts, gets, whatever, and you can actually see it and it'll take it apart. And then you basically can open it and you can make sure that it's going to be there because inevitably one of the bugs that you're always going to hit as a developer is some moron has decided to change the schema or change the file format <laughs> and all of a sudden you're broken. But yes. it's new in Swift 4 and it's got a great foundation. It's got a lot of really good things in there and it's doing some things that step away from what is in the JSON definitions. There is no date in JSON definition. There's strings, there are numbers, uh, both int, floats, there's a boolean. But once it starts going beyond that, and the nice thing is that since I've been doing a whole lot of apps, which is pulling the JSON data, 
converting it. You can find JSON anywhere on the net. You, you can find, you know, most APIs are now dumping in this. You, you get Google Maps, you can get any score of APIs. A lot of this stuff really annoys me because I feel like we never make any progress in computer science because every couple of years we have to go back and reinvent the wheel because like somehow this new version of the wheel is better than the previous one we had. So you mentioned about like how you had XML and then somebody decided they were going to redo XML and do this JSON thing. And then, you know, a couple of years they can come out with something else. And it's just, I feel like we never really make any progress because every couple of years we have to go in and smash the wheel and then re redo it. And we never actually like be go beyond these very small fundamental problems that have already been solved. We, we have to find ways of making new problems. <laughs> You're quoting XKCD. There are 15 standards <laughs> and we need to fix this. We need to find one better standard. And later we now have 16 I mean, there are advantages to JSON and there are advantages to XML, and I think there are places for one over the other. But uh, but focusing, I, I want to to focus back in on Codable. I, I appreciate the fact that they've tackled thing about dates because Apple has the date class that basically is that com it's it's a computational class that deals more with how much time has passed rather than being calendar. Oh, it's so irritating. It's such an irritating class. Um, you know, the whole milliseconds thing, and I'll admit that I have done, uh, it, that I've gotten it backwards, date seconds from, date seconds to, and I go, oh, wait, that's negative. But having something that can convert that. That being said, there's a couple of caveats, and that is that um, while dates do exist in several formats, you have to actually tell it which date format you want. Over the past three years, I've used multiple classes that were supposed to interpret dates from different places and different format. Well, it doesn't help that ISO 8601, which is the date standard. That's the one, right. It, it doesn't help that the date standard itself says, okay, so when you get into this section, like the time zones, it could have Zs. It might have pluses or minuses. We don't know how many zeros in that. It's, it's very bubbly. And as a result, that makes it harder to write the algorithms around it because you, you have to handle 17 or 18 potential different ways of interpretation. And the, the date format, you know, are you getting seconds from Epic 1970? Because as we all know, nothing in computers existed before January 1st, 1970. Are we dealing with UTC time? And of course, you've got Windows off to themselves doing their own version of time. And it's interesting because if you, you don't declare the time, Apple use what it calls the default system, which I haven't quite figured out what that default is. That default is time since 1970. No, it's not because I got a Unix, I got a Unix time and I had the JSON decoder parse it and it told me it was a date in like 2039. <laughs> so when you pull your JSON decoder, I think it's really important to actually instantiate it rather than try to put it all on one line as JSON decoder, decode, etc. You know, you have to start with a let let decoder equal initialize JSON decoder. You need that because you want to set your date if you're doing interpretations. There are also some issues and they're not going to be tackled at this point, at least for Swift 4, where if you are dealing with uh if you're dealing with ISO dates that are portions of a second or milliseconds or decimal milliseconds, 
it doesn't, the parser can't handle that. Yeah, I have to do it tomorrow. Fortunately, and one of the things they turned around and did really, really well was that you could choose your date style. You could say, I want an ISO, or you could choose you want one of these things, but you can also put your own closure in to do the date interpretation. Both date and data, and data is huge. You can actually on the fly do that. Now, inevitably, you're going to start writing your own decoders and you're going to be doing a lot of the handwork, but at least it's still there. Would you rather write two lines of code or 42 lines of code? How masochistic am I feeling? You know, that's a great question. You know, two lines of code versus four lines of code. It also comes down to how clear do I want this to be? How how okay am I? I mean, uh, I, I once heard the guy uh, heard a guy joke that he wanted at least a hundred lines of unit tests for every ten lines of code written, and there's truth in that and there's silliness in that. But there are times where I'd rather have the forty lines of code so that I can put intercepts, I can put unit tests and background checks. There are times I want two lines of code so I don't have to think about the dumb stuff. And you want some of that code to be comments that tell you exactly how that code operates. Well, the plus of Swift there is that Swift is fairly linguistic. It, it's fairly good. Now, one of the things I've discussed with uh, uh, with uh, one of RayWenderlich.com's uh, members, Jesse Catterwall, is, uh, and he, he is uh, stunning when it comes to the English grammar of Swift, how a plural gets read, how a singular, how a verb gets read, you know, the concept of a codable versus NS coding. But in the new codable, if you are trying to rename from what the JSON tag is to what your, what your class instance or your struct tag is, you actually have to create a not quite enum. Now it is an enum. It's called coding keys, but the name coding keys sort of goes against what you think of as an enum. And it's not really using the enum like you're used to, like a list of things. It's sort of like, I'm going to parse through your enums. That sounds like an entendre. That sounds like a double entendre that you're going to parse through your enums. Yeah, and that's that, and it doesn't. It doesn't quite feel right. But you have to make a list that's your conversion table of how the tag is spelled in the JSON file, because a lot of that's going to be snake case. So you're going to get, you know, like, you know, my my underscore finance, and over in Swift, it's going to be lower camel case. But that textual change is going to require you to use the coding keys enum. And that's rather nasty because it's a code coding keys enum is of, if I get this backwards, is of coding key and string. So you can basically say, well, this name's not going to change. It's just simply name all lowercase. So I'll make an enum of, I'll, I'll make a case name. I'll make a case foo, a case bar, but then the ones that have to change, I have to do case my Swift name equals quote my JSON name, end quote. And if you miss one, well, then that won't get parsed. You can do a case insensitive compare. No, no, no. For the, for the actual JSON, for the actual decoder or encoders to work without you having to do any other code, when you say, okay, just decode it, that enum is what's actually doing the, oh, this is the name you want me to use. 
And if if you uh, if you do it as a struct, you're not as in as much danger because with structs you don't have to pre-initialize. If you're doing it as a class, you have to pre-initialize, or in in it you have to set values. God, structs have been so interesting to work with. Well, especially with Swift. I mean, uh, with Swift, you've you've got that sense of everything is an object. I mean, even your even your scaler integers are in a way objects. It's nice that it handles floats. It handles uh, data. Yeah, and it's easier to work with everything. URLs get handled correctly. And it's really good that you can make your substructures codable and then basically say, okay, this structure has this substructure in it. Everything's codable. Your enums can be codable so that you can actually have something that comes as a text or a value be converted straight through to your enums, which makes it a lot easier for your coding. And the automatic warnings are pretty awesome too. I like the stuff. It's It's got a good, strong foundation. There are a couple of bugs in it, and there's a couple of sort of workarounds to deal with it right now. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily going to replace all of your old object mapper or any of that code just yet. It is a good start, and I have been converting some of my code to it. And it's a good exercise right now. And I think like some of the other technologies, like as we talked about with frameworks, it's it's a starting place right now. And it's going to be a growth problem initially. It's, it's going to be sort of a, a slow learning process for some of it. And some of it will come very naturally. But I'm looking forward to seeing how it grows, especially when we start looking into Swift 4.1 and Swift 5 with it. Thanks a lot, Art, for dropping by and talking to us about storyboards. This wraps the inaugural episode of the season of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. And next week, we're going to check in with Ben DeFrancisco. Now back to you, Ray. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time. <laughs>